you would please turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Booker T. Washington once described a meeting that he had with an ex-slave from Virginia. He described it in his book entitled Up From Slavery. He wrote, I found that this man had made a contract with his master two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation. The agreement went to the effect that the slave was permitted to buy himself by paying so much per year for his body. And while he was paying for himself, he was to be permitted to labor where and for whom he pleased. Finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio, he went there. When freedom came, he was still in debt to his master some $300. Notwithstanding that the Emancipation Proclamation freed him from any obligation to his master, this black man walked the greater portion of the distance back to where his old master lived in Virginia and placed the last dollar with interest in his hands. In talking to me about this, the, the man told me that he knew he did not have to pay this debt, but that he had given his word to his master and his word he had never broken. He felt he could not enjoy his freedom until he had fulfilled his promise. I remember the first time I read that story and I thought, that's nuts. <laughs> he didn't have to pay back, let alone pay back with interest. But then the longer I thought about it, I thought, wow, that is amazing character. There's something within us that responds to that kind of character intuitively. We say, that is good. Being faithful, loyal, trustworthy, keeping your word. We say that is good because that is a reflection of the character of God within us. God is loyal. God is faithful. God always keeps his word. Romans chapter 8 ended with a promise. It's a promise based upon the character of God. I will allow nothing to separate you from me, not even you. God made a promise. Nothing can separate you. Why? Because I am loyal. I am faithful. But for the early church, this raised a really deep problem theologically and practically. What about the Jews? They appear to be separated from God. Has God broken his word to them? And if God's broken his word to them, can we trust him to keep his word to us? What about the nation of Israel? Does that not nullify what we understand about the character of God? Why is Israel separated from God? Paul spends three chapters arguing this, and it's very practical for us. Because again, if God doesn't keep his word to Israel, how can we expect he will keep his word to us? His answer comes in three parts. First, God did not choose most Jews, or he did not choose all of Israel. That's the doctrine of election. God is free. God can choose. But God is also merciful, and so he chose some Jews. He chose initially Abraham, undeserving Abraham, a pagan idolater, and pulled him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, even though Abraham did not justify God's choice. But God in his mercy chose Abraham. Why? So that he could extend his mercy to all peoples. And he so chose Isaac and he chose Jacob, not because they were worthy, but so that through them he could extend his mercy to all people. God is free. God is merciful. God chooses in order to extend mercy. But God does choose. 
Which leaves us with another theological dilemma. Is God then responsible? Is God at fault? Can we turn and blame God for Israel's separation? Paul answers emphatically, no. The other side of the coin is that most Jews did not choose God. That's the doctrine of human responsibility. The Jews did hear the gospel. They clearly understood the gospel and they rejected the gospel. And so they are responsible for their current condition. Paul ends chapter 10 with these words, verse 21. He says, but as for Israel, God says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. This is the history of my chosen people. I am constantly pursuing them and they are constantly rejecting my pursuit. Which leaves us with another difficult question. Is Israel then beyond hope? Have they thwarted God's plans? Chapter 11, Paul will say again emphatically, no, because God is faithful. And God's faithfulness is going to overcome their stubbornness. Paul's going to say God's faithfulness is demonstrated right now in that God is saving a few Jews. He's demonstrating his faithfulness. It will also be demonstrated in the future when all of God's promises that he's ever made to Israel will be fulfilled. So let's unpack chapter 11. We'll get as far through it as we can. I think Gary's a little ambitious that I'm going to finish quickly, but I'll do my best. Paul's first point is this. God proves his faithfulness by preserving a remnant for Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How Elijah pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Uh, this concept of uh, a remnant is very common throughout all the Bible. It means a small portion. It's a small portion who believe. It's a theme throughout the whole Bible because in all of human history, we find out that, generally speaking, most people reject God and a few respond positively to God's overtures. So we see this theme throughout the Bible, a remnant. Paul uses an illustration from Elijah's day. Uh, hopefully you remember the story of Elijah. Got a picture for you here, again from our travels. This is on top of Mount Carmel. It's a statue of Elijah fighting the prophets of Baal. Remember how this thing all got set up. Northern portion of the kingdom, Israel, northern section, were in rebellion against God following King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. And uh, they were idolatrous. And so Elijah prayed that God would discipline the people by not sending rain. And there was no rain. And it was time to bring this battle to a head. And so uh, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal up on top of Mount Carmel. And they laid out their sacrifices. And the prophets of Baal danced around all day. Nothing happened. They danced some more. They cut themselves, as was their practice. Let's get attention. Let's get the God's attention. Maybe he's sleeping. <laughs> Elijah mocks them. And he, he literally says, it's euphemistically stated in, in our translation, but he says, maybe your God has gone in and he is relieving himself. Okay, <laughs> Let's get his attention. 
You know, he's using the restroom. Wake him up, wake him up. Nothing happens. They're exhausted by the end of the day. They've let their blood. Elijah said, now it's my turn. And he puts his offering on the altar. He says, why don't you pour some water on it? Pour more water on it. Pour more water on it. And water's flowing everywhere. And then he calls upon the name of the Lord and fire rains from heaven. It takes up the altar. It takes up the water. It takes up the offering. The stones are burned up. Everything's gone. Pow. And everybody says, the Lord. Oh, yeah. He's God. He's God. Right? And all the prophets of Baal are slain. The people have a revival. Then Elijah goes and he prays. And God sends not a little rain. He sends a torrent of rain. So much so that there's floods and Elijah races and runs. He runs to the south. And he's running and as he's running, he becomes depressed because Jezebel puts a price on his head. And he feels alone and he feels isolated and he feels frustrated. And he stops in the wilderness and he is so depressed. He says, God, just kill me. He's accomplished this amazing spiritual victory and now he is in the depths of depression. God, just kill me. Just take my life. There's no, it would have been better if I was never born. And God meets him in his point of need and he gives him sleep and he gives him water and he gives him food. And Elijah wakes up and he's still depressed. Let me read to you from 1 Kings chapter 19. If you want to turn there, you can or you can just... Listen as I read. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. It says, Then he came there to a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altar and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and strong wind was rending the rocks and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, in case you forgot. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord says to him, you know what, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not alone. I'm going to give you a partner. And send Elisha. Ah, you got a brother. Besides that, there are 7,000. I know it's not a lot, Elijah, but 7,000 in the whole nation that, that have not bowed the knee to Baal, that are faithful along with you. You're not alone. But I want you to notice, Elijah wanted God to speak in the storm again. Like he had just done on top of Mount Carmel. He wanted to see fire and smoke and floods and rainstorms. He wanted something dramatic. He wanted national revival. He wanted everyone in Israel to turn. God said, no, I'm, I'm just going to speak in, in, in a whisper in the wind. You got a remnant. You got one other prophet with you. And that happens to us a lot of times, doesn't it? We say, God, I've got a problem. Would you speak in the storm? Would you speak in a big, huge, dramatic way? I'm sick. Take it away. Like that. I'm ill. 
solve it. I've got this struggle with this sin. Take it away. Let me never, ever even feel temptation again. God, move in this huge, dramatic way. There are members of my family. Save them all, God. Save them at once. Save them today. Speak in the storm. Speak big. Speak dramatic. But you know, the typical way that God speaks in our lives and works in the world, the typical way is in the whisper. Sometimes he breaks in in the storm, but that's the exception. In the early church, in Paul's day, God was speaking again in a whisper. The church was coming under persecution, in particular the Jewish believers. And they wanted validation because they were being persecuted by their Jewish friends and family. And increasingly they were being persecuted by Rome because the church was seen as distinct from Judaism. And so they're getting hit from every angle and they're saying, God, validate this decision we've made because we're really suffering. Speak in the storm, bring in lots and lots of Jews. And Paul says, no, right now, God is only speaking in a whisper among your people. It's a remnant. It's a remnant. True in Elijah's day, true in Paul's day, it's true in our day. Uh, It's estimated that there are 14 million Jewish people in the world today, and there are 150,000 who are believers in Jesus Christ. It's just just a remnant. It's a small number. But you know what's most remarkable is that there is even a Jew at all on the face of the earth. There are no more Edomites, or Moabites, or Jebusites, or Canaanites, Other peoples came in and conquered them, moved them off, or intermarried with them. They died off, or through intermarriage, they're gone. Their their race no longer exists. But in spite of the fact that the Jews have been persecuted for four millennia, since the, the day that they began, they still exist. Persecutions from Philistines and Moabites and other peoples. Persecution from Herod, who tried to kill them. From the Assyrians, who scattered them, and the Babylonians who put them to death and moved them in different places. Persecutions in the Inquisition when they moved toward the Jews and focusing on the Jews and you can convert or you can die. Persecutions from the Russian, the pogroms. Persecution from uh, the German Holocaust. It's amazing that there even exists a Jew today in spite of the fact they've been persecuted everywhere they've gone at any point in time. In the late 19th century, uh, Queen Elizabeth asked her prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli. Give me some evidence for the existence of God. Disraeli thought for a moment and he said, Your Majesty, the Jew. Your Majesty, the Jew. God demonstrates his faithfulness in that the Jewish nation still exists and there is a remnant that believes. Second, God proves his faithfulness by continuing to bless all peoples through the nation of Israel. Just look with me again, chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, and verse 7. Romans 11, verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Paul brings up this concept of hardening again. Remember he introduced it in Romans chapter 9. God hardens. 
But what does it mean that God hardens? Paul uses a quotation from Isaiah. And if you go back and you read the original context in Isaiah, it's clear. God hardens the Jews because the Jews are hard. Okay? In other words, God hardens people in cooperation with their own hardness. This is what he did with Pharaoh. You go back and read the account about Pharaoh. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh. In other words, God was working with the direction that Pharaoh wanted to go. God is working with the direction that the Jewish people wanted to go. God is hardening them in cooperation with their will. In other words, this concept of hardening doesn't mean that there's someone who really longs to know God and loves God and God says, absolutely not, I'm going to blind your eyes. Okay? That's not what it's talking about. Saying that God is moving in cooperation with their will and God hardens the Jews. Why? In order to show mercy to all people. Okay? God's hardening is in order to extend mercy to others. That's the point that he makes in the next section here. Read with me in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the Jews remain a source of blessing. Not just in spite of their sin, but through their sin. Paul is not excusing their sin because of God's hardening. He is saying it is their transgression. They are responsible. And God, in his amazing, powerful sovereignty, can actually cause their sin to extend blessing to us who are not Jews. This is what happened in the early church. The Jews persecuted the early church, and what happened from that persecution? The church was scattered, and they took the gospel out. To whom? To the Gentiles. And Paul says the wonderful thing is that God's going to wrap it back around and he's going to move the Jews to jealousy as they see the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get a toddler to eat something they don't want to eat? Ah, you show them how good it is, right? (laughs) Okay, God says this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring it back around, back to the Jews. I'm going to manage this whole process that even through their sin, they will be a blessing. Remember God's initial calling of Abraham. What did it include? He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you land, seed, and a blessing. I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you can be a blessing to all nations. And you will be a blessing to all nations, even when you don't want to be. Even when you're rejecting me, I'm going to use your rejection to bless all peoples. Third, the Jews remain God's chosen people. In spite of their rejection of God, they remain the people of God. Verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And the root is still the root. Notice he uses two analogies. One is a lump. 
It's a lump of dough. The lump of dough is the Jewish people. That piece off the lump of dough is the remnant who have believed. Then he switches metaphors and he talks about an olive tree. Okay? Let me let you visualize this for a minute. This is from the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. Okay? So it was a garden that had olive trees, and their gardens were always functional. They weren't just flowers. They, were, they, they produced things, uh, crops that people could eat. This is an olive garden, and in the Garden of Gethsemane at one end, apparently there was an olive press, so they could pick the olives, press the olives, and they could uh, make the oil and sell the oil. Some of these trees, you'll notice how large the roots are. Some of these trees are uh, well over a thousand years old. Ancient trees throughout this garden. This is an olive tree from Nazareth, and I think it really illustrates well Paul's point. Uh, The root of the olive tree is the Abrahamic covenant, or the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the root, and that will always be the root. The stump is the Jewish people, ethnic Jews. Largely, they have been cut off, but you'll notice there's a little twig there that's growing out naturally. That's the remnant. Okay, that's the remnant. And I want you to notice that in this section, Paul is not talking about individuals. He's talking about groups of people. Uh, The you there, interestingly, is in the singular, so that Paul can make his point. It's singular. He's not talking to one Roman Christian, to whom he's writing. He's talking about Gentiles. And groups of people. And how God has moved among groups of people so that he can extend his blessing to more groups of people. By and large, Israel has rejected God and in their hardness, God has cut them off. But he's maintained a remnant. Why? Because they are attached to the root. And the root has not changed. The Abrahamic covenant promises the blessings that are going to come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That has not changed. But God has moved and is now moving through different peoples now. We saw that first in the early church with the Samaritans and the Greeks and the Romans, the gospel spreading out through them. We've talked about this as we've gone through Romans, as we studied Acts a couple years ago. The early Jewish believers really had a hard time understanding this. You mean God really wants to go after them? Yeah, look at the Abrahamic promises. Be a blessing to all peoples, all nations. Even against your will, I'm going to scatter you so you have to take the gospel out to these other peoples. And so Samaritans, Greeks, Romans begin to respond to the gospel. Uh, in more modern times, we see revivals moving in particular in England and the United States. In the uh, 16th century, there was revival that was sparked by William Tyndale translating the, the Bible into English so the people could read the Bible. And as they read the Bible, they were drawn to God and there was revival. Okay? Next century, there was revival among the Puritans. And then the Wesley brothers sparked revival in Methodism. Methodism was about methodically studying the word of God. And we saw revival. From that revival, there was missions activity that was amazing. Uh, Hudson Taylor came from this era. Uh, Cambridge Seven came from the next generation after that. William Carey. In other words, as these people realized that God has blessed us, in order to be a blessing, they turned around and they began to send. And you could go anywhere in the world and you would find a British missionary. There was a revival in 1740, the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, in the 1800s, later, late 1800s, the student volunteer movement. A revival that started on a college campus with a, a, a prayer meeting of about 
five or six college students praying for God to send revival. And you know what happened? They ended up sending tens of thousands of missionaries. They realized we've been blessed. Why? So that we can be a blessing to others. God is moving among us so that he can move through us to all nations. Because that was the original promise that was given to Abraham. In our own day, we see it just to give a couple of examples. In Asia, uh, there is revival in China. For years, uh, we in the West thought the gospel had died out because of communism in China. And then as the country began to open up a little bit, we realized, no, there are millions of believers. The church has, has been thriving, even under persecution. Even when it has had to stay underground, the church is exploding. And the Chinese church has developed a vision that they could go back to Jerusalem. Their vision is that they would go back the opposite way down the Silk Road and they would move back through Central Asia and into the Middle East and that they would be the ones, since Westerners aren't wanted in the Middle East, they would be the ones to bring the gospel all the way back to the Muslims and back all the way to Jerusalem. There's revival happening. Revival in uh, Korea in the last 50 years. Let me give you just a few uh, illustrations of this. In 2005, it's the latest statistic I could find, 2005, 40% of Koreans in South Korea, okay, 40% of South Koreans identify themselves as Christian. That is one of the highest percentage population of, of Christians in the world. The largest single congregation is in the city of Seoul. Okay, this is one of their gatherings at Easter. 11 of the 12 largest churches are in Seoul. Okay, 11 of the 12 largest. They had the largest baptismal service since Pentecost in South Korea. They send the second largest number of missionaries. Only the U.S. sends more missionaries than South Korea. But South Korea is a lot smaller country. Okay, per capita, they send a lot more missionaries than we send. 1980, there were 93 missionaries sent from South Korea. 2009, they sent 20,000 missionaries from South Korea. Anywhere you go in the world, you will find Korean missionaries. Anywhere you go. Blessed to be a blessing. Carrying the gospel to all nations. And if you look at Korea or China in particular, the hallmark of their churches is prayer. They pray all day long. They pray all night long. And they pray not simply that they would be blessed, but that they could bless others. And what Paul says is, you know what? Someday God's going to turn around and he's going to restore Israel itself. And Israel itself will once again be like Korea and China. And they will become once again the source of blessing to all nations. Why? Well, because they're the natural branch. How easy is it for God to graft the natural branch in if he can graft unnatural branches in to these promises that he's made? Read with me in Romans chapter 11, verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Right? And what are the branches? Well, the branches, natural branches, are the Jews. The wild branches are Gentile nations. The root, the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises to Israel, but for all peoples. Verse 20. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. And remember, he's not talking about individual believers in the church of Rome. He's talking about Gentiles. He's saying, you Gentiles, God could move on from you in your nation. 
and blessed through someone else. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. He's not talking about losing your salvation, people. He's talking about God's movements among people. And when the people are cooperative and they realize they're blessed to be a blessing, God continues to move through them and to use them. When they cease to believe, God cuts them off and he moves through another group of people. That's what he's talking about. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, that is the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural, that is the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? Do you see his point? He's saying, God can turn around and he can restore them to a place of blessing, and he in fact will as soon as they believe. And if you as a people turn against God, then God is going to say, I'm no longer going to use you, and he'll cut you off and he'll use someone else. This stands as a warning, I believe, to the church. If you look at the nation of England right now, it's cold spiritually. We are sending missionaries to England. Korea sending missionaries to England. China is sending missionaries to England. Why? To revive the church in England because it's cold. It's cold. How did that happen? Well, it happened after the Enlightenment where they implied Enlightenment principles to the Bible and they decided the Bible is no longer the word of God. And they kept doing Christian practices, but they no longer believed that God was God as he revealed himself in the Bible. And so God turned his hand a blessing. See that throughout Western Europe. I think it serves as a warning to the church in America. Yale, Harvard, Princeton, all began as Christian schools. They were Christian schools. But they were affected by these Enlightenment principles that came from England, came to the U.S., and they rejected the Bible as the word of God. It serves as a warning to us as a church. Our church, our church, we're blessed. We are so blessed. Why are we so blessed? So that we can enjoy all of our blessings? And build a bowling alley? (laughs) I don't think so. Why are we blessed? So that we can do things like Backyard Bible Club and get the gospel into our neighborhoods. So that we can send our money and send missionaries throughout the world. So that we can reach out onto the college campus and make sacrifices for our community, for our campus, for the world. We're blessed so that we can be a blessing. That is why we exist. And if we decide at some point in time we're blessed so that we can enjoy all of God's blessings, God can just simply remove his hand of blessing and he can move it to another place. Because he will accomplish his will. He will accomplish his will. We want to be a part of that. And so we want to be a blessing. That's what Paul is saying. His third point is this. God will guarantee his promises to Israel. That is, he will turn around and he's going to come back to Israel. Even though Israel is is hard and is cut off right now, and there's just a remnant, he's going to come back to Israel. Why? Because he promised to move through Israel. He will not break his promise. Read with me. Chapter 11. Verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. 
Okay? And a mystery for Paul is this. It was not revealed in the Old Testament, but now God has revealed it through his apostles to the church. This is the mystery. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't think you're all that just because you're experiencing God's blessing. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A couple phrases I want you to notice. First, the fullness of the Gentiles. That means every Gentile who will believe has come into the body of Christ and has believed in Jesus. And God has allowed a hardness on Israel until that point in time. Verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. That is, once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God is going to turn back and he's going to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That is, all Israel will be saved when they respond to the new covenant. That's a new covenant verse. When they believe that Jesus is in fact their Messiah. In my opinion, this will happen right toward the end of the tribulation period. From the midpoint to the end of the tribulation period, I believe Israel will experience a national revival. Because they will realize that the Antichrist is not the real Christ. And suddenly they will understand and realize that Jesus, he was our Messiah that I rejected. And when Christ comes down, we're told in Zechariah, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. As for a lost son, and they will believe that Jesus is their Messiah. And there will be revival for the nation of Israel. In my opinion, all Jews. At that point in time, some people think just the nation of Israel in general. I personally think when he says all Israel, it will be all Israel. Every single Jew, every single Israelite will believe. Why? Because God promised. God promised. Read on with me. From the standpoint of the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The word literally means uh, cannot be repented of. That is God will not change his mind. This verse applies specifically to Israel. Can you apply it to yourself? Well, absolutely. But it applies first to Israel. It's written to Israel. God made Israel promises, and he will keep his promises to Israel. He said, I'll give you a land, a seed, and a blessing. You're going to have the land. Your seed, that is your people, will remain. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all nations because my word cannot be broken. God makes promises. God keeps promises. Read on. Verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience... So these also now have been dis- disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also now may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. What is Romans 9, 10, and 11 about? I have frequently heard it taught as the oppressive, dictatorial, fatalistic sovereignty of God. That's not what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about. It's about the faithfulness of God to show his mercy to all people. It's about God's faithfulness, his character. And does God elect? Yes, he elects so that he can extend mercy to all. And when you look at the Jew and you see them outside, it would seem, of the promises of God, and you say, well, has God broken his promise? Paul says, absolutely not. God will fulfill his promises. Why? Because God always does fulfill his promises. Let me leave you with one final verse, or a few verses here from 
the book of Micah, the prophet. Micah said, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast or loyal love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God, you'll do it because you promised. And you never break your word. Couple thoughts as we close. Why shouldn't any of this matter to us? We spent three weeks talking about Israel, right? Why does this matter to us? First, The fate of the world is tied to Israel. Christ will not return until we see this national revival. And when they do turn, Christ will return. Those things are going to happen together. And that's when God will begin to set all things right on earth through Jesus Christ. So pray for Israel. Pray for Israel to turn toward Jesus Christ. Second, Israel's fate is tied to the faithfulness of God. If God isn't faithful to them, we can't trust God to be faithful to us. But God is always faithful. Faithful to them, faithful to us. That means no one is beyond hope. Pray for Israel. Pray for their softening of heart. Pray for your friends and family members. Maybe you've prayed for a year. Maybe you've prayed for a decade. Maybe you've been praying and praying and praying. No one is beyond hope because God doesn't give up. Yeah, I love the song we sang earlier. He never gives up. He never gives. He never, ever gives up on us. Don't give up on your friends and family. Pray, God, please, move in their hearts, soften their hearts. Draw them to your son, Jesus Christ. And then finally, as Paul ends, he says, worship. Man, there's stuff in Romans 9, 10, 11 that I just can't unpack for you because I don't know. I don't understand it. I can't, I can't get to the depths of this understanding. Paul was a lot smarter than I am. But this is how he ended. Okay, This is how he ended. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, not of us. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are great. I thank you that you are beyond our understanding. You're not small like us. Father, we confess that there so often are things that we don't understand. I pray that our hearts would be humble before you. I pray that our minds would be energetic to seek out your deep things. But at the end of the day, we would fall on our knees and we'd worship We would thank you that you are always faithful. I thank you, Father, that we trust you to keep your word. You will keep your word to Israel and you will keep your word to us that nothing can separate us from your love which we have experienced through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you. And remember, pray for those who don't know Jesus around you. Have a great week.